Hi everyone, Israel and the Palestinians are at war again, which means that it's time for a Jew I don't know current events episode in which I try to untangle the multiple conflicts happening at once and explain as best I can beyond the headlines what's going on and why. The last week or so has seen furious fighting between Israelis and Palestinians. On the one hand, this looks like your usual but no less traumatic fighting that flares up every few years. Hamas shoots rockets at Israel. Israel responds with airstrikes. People die on both sides, including, tragically, several Palestinian and Israeli children. But in other respects, what's happening right now is a bit unusual. And that's because what we're seeing here are things that technically aren't connected but have become conflated together at this moment. We need to both untangle these things and then talk about how they got connected. One is a fight over a Palestinian neighborhood in Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. The second is a fight on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem's Old City. The third is the battle between Hamas and Israel. And the fourth, which in some ways might rival all the rest, is the vicious riots taking place in Israeli cities from and between Arab Israelis and Jews. Alright, so a lot going on, too much to fully explain in one episode, but here we go. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew I Don't Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So let's take a look at this first event, the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, which fast became an international rallying cry against Israel over the past week. Here's the big takeaway. This is a fight about the future of Jerusalem, not just this single neighborhood. The right wing in Israel wants all of Jerusalem to be Israeli territory, and therefore don't want the Palestinians living there. The Palestinians want East Jerusalem to be their future capital. The struggle over this neighborhood is a reflection of that. Add in history, geography, and the law, and you have one fine mess. On the surface, this is a really complicated real estate problem that goes back 150 years, crosses two empires that no longer exist, a United Nations plan that didn't work, and two wars in which the neighborhood changed hands. And to think I had trouble getting my landlord to replace a broken garbage disposal, try working out who owns what here. Sheikh Jarrah began during the 1860s, when Palestine was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. Many of Jerusalem's most notable Arab families settled there. The neighborhood was majority Muslim, but it was also mixed. The Ottomans sold property to Muslims, Christians, and Jews alike. By the early 1900s, several thousand people lived there, and the area became known for a variety of important institutions for all three faiths. Shrines and mosques and tombs and schools. After World War I in 1918, the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and the British Empire took over Palestine as its colony. The British preserved the property framework established under the Ottomans. But as my longtime listeners know from Season 2, the British colony collapsed under the weight of violence between Arabs and Jews in the 1930s and 40s. In 1947, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine to create a Jewish state and an Arab state, the intention was that Jerusalem would be an international city under UN control. The Jews accepted this plan, the Arabs did not. When the British left in May of 1948, the Jews legally declared independence and the Arabs attacked the brand new state. The Israeli War of Independence broke out. Sheikh Jarrah was located right in the thick of the fighting over Jerusalem. 
an Arab neighborhood sandwiched next to several Jewish ones, prime strategic ground for both sides. During the war, Arab forces seized the neighborhood and proceeded to ethnically cleanse the Jews there. Dozens were murdered, and those who survived were kicked out. By the end of the war, Israeli forces came up close to the neighborhood, but didn't manage to capture it, so Sheikh Jarrah fell on the Arab side of the line that divided Jerusalem basically in half. West Jerusalem became Israeli and Jewish, East Jerusalem was Arab and under the control of the Kingdom of Jordan. The Jordanian authorities allowed Palestinian families to move into the former Jewish residences in the neighborhood. These Palestinians had themselves been displaced from elsewhere in Jerusalem, whether ousted by Jewish forces or just by the general fighting. It's important to note that Jordan was the occupying force here. There was no Palestinian state, no Palestinian government. This neighborhood had passed hands from first the Ottomans, then to the British, and now to the Jordanians. For a real estate lawyer, this is either a dream or a nightmare, but we're not even done. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, Israel captured East Jerusalem from Jordan, including Sheikh Jarrah. Shortly after, the lawsuits started. Various Jewish groups sued to reclaim property that they had said belonged to Jews before 1949. Some of these groups were right-wing nationalist groups looking to establish Jewish settlements in East Jerusalem. Some were groups of descendants from the original owners, often Mizrahi Jews from Yemen, for decades, these cases wound their way through the Israeli court system in contentious fights over property deeds from the Ottoman era. Sometimes the courts ruled in favor of the Jewish claims and people were evicted, their homes taken over by Jews. Other times the court ruled that Palestinians could remain as long as they paid rent to Israel, which now controlled this territory. But in protest over various Israeli court decisions, several Palestinians refused to pay rent, including the four families whose homes are at the center of this latest protest. What happened now is that an Israeli court finally ruled on the case of these four houses in Sheikh Jarrah. The court ruled that these homes were indeed originally Jewish property, and as the current Palestinian residents refused to pay rent on them, and hadn't in years, they could, under the law, be evicted and Jewish residents permitted to move in. The Palestinians appealed, and the case came up for review with the Israeli Supreme Court. And that's when the protests erupted this past week. Thanks to social media, this dispute was broadcast around the world, and thanks to the violence of the protests, the Supreme Court decided to postpone its review. Now, plenty of people are arguing that this is really just a property dispute between private parties. The Israeli court is only following the law, and the Israeli government is only carrying out the orders of the court. And, well, that's true. But of course it's bigger than that, because it's the law itself that many see as the problem. I'm not just giving you a history of this one small neighborhood. This is a story about the entire city of Jerusalem. Here's the issue. Geography and the law and the future of Jerusalem. Sheikh Jarrah sits right on the line dividing West and East Jerusalem. It's an invisible line. There's no border. In most places, it's just a matter of crossing the street. But there is, nevertheless, a very real division. West Jerusalem is historically Jewish, East Jerusalem Palestinian. But since 1967, Israel has occupied East Jerusalem. Palestinians see East Jerusalem as the future capital of their future Palestinian state. 
So any attempts by Israel to populate Jews in that part of the city is seen as colonialist ethnic cleansing. But the right wing in Israel sees all of Jerusalem as historic Jewish territory, and don't ever want Israel to give it up to the Palestinians, hence their efforts to populate as many Jews as possible there. That's the geography, then there's the law. Under Israeli law, Jewish citizens are allowed to seek restitution for property lost to the Arabs during the War of Independence in 1948 and 1949. But Palestinians, who are not citizens, cannot. Palestinians have no legal recourse in Israel to sue for property lost to the Jews in the same war. Why? It's because of what's called the right of return, what is perhaps the single most heated issue between Israel and the Palestinians. Palestinians claim the right to return to their homes and villages that became part of Israel during the War of Independence. Remember, the Arab states invaded Israel but then lost the war, and as a result, Israel's territory expanded, and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians became refugees. Those refugees and their descendants, who today number in the millions, claim they have the right to return to their homes anywhere and everywhere in Israel, not just Jerusalem. But if this happened, the Palestinians would become the majority population in Israel, and Israel would cease to exist as a Jewish state. The right of return is an existential threat to Israel. That's why Israel does not allow Palestinians to reclaim Israeli territory. That's why Israeli law does not allow Palestinians who aren't citizens to sue for lost property. And the right wing in power think that that should also apply to East Jerusalem, since in their view, all of Jerusalem, not just the West, ought to belong to Israel. Some say this all amounts to a land grab and ethnic cleansing. Some say this is a matter of national security and Israel's ability to exist as a Jewish state. What we see happening is that a real estate dispute in Jerusalem has become a stand-in for the much bigger conflict over Jerusalem. The Palestinians facing eviction in Sheikh Jarrah are living on property that was itself violently ethnically cleansed of Jews. Perhaps Jews therefore do have a right, morally and legally, to reclaim this property. I don't think that's unreasonable. But there's no doubt that this is also being driven by a right-wing ultra-nationalist group that does want the Arabs gone from Jerusalem, and this I don't find reasonable. It's fair to say that both Jews and Palestinians were deported from Jerusalem during the war in 1948-49. So in this instance, I guess I'm wondering whether it's really worth it for Israel to gain these four houses in East Jerusalem, never mind that it's within the law. Is it really necessary to evict dozens of people, spark an international uproar, deal with violence and mayhem from protests, and further antagonize people on all sides of the conflict? For four houses? Either way, I don't have to live with the consequences of my opinions the way that people in Jerusalem do, so who knows? The Supreme Court has said they will review the appeal case next month. So let's move a mile down the road to the old city of Jerusalem, specifically the Temple Mount, scenes this past week of fierce fighting between the Palestinians and the Israeli police. The Palestinians claim that Israeli police attacked innocent people at prayer. The police say they were trying to quell a riot. In this one, I think it's fair to give the Israelis the strong benefit of the doubt. Because the big takeaway here is that the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank uses violence on the Temple Mount to boost their own political support. 
The Temple Mount is the giant platform in the Old City, 2,000 years old, that is both the holiest site for Judaism and the third holiest site for Islam. You got the Western Wall on one side, and up on top of the platform, the Gold Dome of the Rock, and next to that, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it's the mosque, not the dome, that is the holy spot. For most of its history, the Temple Mount was in the hands of the Muslims. But in the Six-Day War in 1967, as with the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, Israel captured the old city. To avert a wider war with the Muslim world, Israel quickly cut a deal with Jordan. Jordan would have administrative and religious control over the Temple Mount. Israel would maintain its security. So Israel has nothing to do with Muslim prayer or ritual or the day-to-day -day functioning of the mosque and the Dome of the Rock, but it does maintain a police presence around the Temple Mount and does respond to unrest. So here's the pattern that's been going on for years. Muslim agitators go up to the Temple Mount and stage a riot, throwing stones at the Israeli police and things like that. The police respond by trying to put down the riot. This gives Palestinian leaders the pretext to start screaming about how the Jews are trying to destroy the mosque and take over the Temple Mount and call for a holy war from all Muslims to stop them. In 1500 years, the Jews only took the Temple Mount once, in 1967, and the first thing they did was hand it back to the Muslims, and the Palestinian leaders know this. So why do they do this? Well, to boost their political fortunes, by making themselves look like noble defenders of Islam and the Palestinian people. And of course to make Israel look bad. So the fighting escalates, it hits the front pages, after a few days it calms down and we settle in to wait for the next cycle, and it all tends to get exacerbated around major holidays, when there are more worshippers visiting the mosque and everyone's a bit more focused than usual on religion. And that's what happened this time, too, coinciding with Ramadan, the Islamic holy month. Make no mistake, the vast majority of Muslims coming to worship at Al-Aqsa were not in any way violent. But there were enough agitators showing up for the express purpose of provoking a conflict that, well, a conflict was provoked. But this year, there was an added component. Ramadan coincided with Jerusalem Day, an Israeli national holiday. Jerusalem Day celebrates what Israel calls the reunification of Jerusalem, that day during the Six-Day War in 1967 when Israel captured the Old City and the Temple Mount, putting them both in Jewish hands for the first time in 2,000 years. It was a bloody battle with a major loss of life for Israel, and the day is celebrated with both memorials and happy celebrations. But, there's always a but, Jerusalem Day is also used as a nationalistic holiday by the right wing to whip up Jewish fervor against the Arabs who still live there, Right-wing Jews will parade through the streets of the Old City, including through the Muslim Quarter, and such parades often will resort to xenophobic screaming at Arabs and Muslims. Not a great sight. So this year you've got both things happening at once, unrest in the Temple Mount and the celebrations for Jerusalem Day, even though this year the parade was moved to avoid the Muslim Quarter. But still, they feed off one another to create a kind of perpetuating sense of siege and conflict. One thing you might be seeing is this photograph and a video that has gone viral. You see a massive crowd of Jews dancing and singing at the Western Wall, and above them, on the Temple Mount next to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, a fire is burning. People are saying, look at this! Jews celebrating while the Holy Mosque is burning! And sure, that's what the picture looks like if you wanted to, but what's really happening is that the Jews at the Western Wall down below are celebrating Jerusalem Day, 
On top, Palestinian agitators were popping off fireworks towards the Israeli police, one of which landed in a tree and caught fire. That fire was not set by the Jews, and the Jews down below were not celebrating an attack on the mosque. So once again, even the smallest bits of unrest at one of the holiest and most contested sites on earth sparks global outcry, as all sides try to use these scenes to manipulate their version of events. And it might have all stayed there, confined to Jerusalem as it usually does, except that instead, Hamas got involved. And that is how all hell broke loose this week. Hamas is a terrorist organization, full stop. They are tyrannical, cruel, focused on the destruction of Israel and the murder of Jews, and don't care at all about the people they rule, the Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip. Here's the big takeaway for this week. This is not about Israel, or Jerusalem, or Sheikh Jarrah, or the occupation. This week's barrage of death and missiles is solely about Palestinian politics. Hamas is nervous about their grip on power, and so sparked a war with Israel to try to prove their mettle. What happened was that Palestinian election season went awry. Hamas rules in the Gaza Strip, but another Palestinian group rules in the West Bank. They're called Fatah. Hamas and Fatah hate each other, and Hamas would love nothing more than to take over the West Bank. Fatah's president is Mahmoud Abbas. He's been president since 2005 in his 16th year of a four-year term. He's old, probably sick, has no real successor, rules over a corrupt government, and never holds elections because he will most certainly lose. But he occasionally dangles the possibility of holding elections, which he recently did, and this time he seemed more serious than usual. That got Hamas excited, because they saw an opportunity to take over the West Bank, and therefore install themselves as the single ruler of Palestine. But then Mahmoud Abbas cancelled the elections. Suddenly Hamas wasn't in the driver's seat. And Fatah was running the show in Jerusalem. They were getting the credit for fighting the Israelis there. Hamas wanted to seize back the agenda from Fatah and make themselves look like the proper leaders of Palestine instead. So what do they do? Attack Israel. In other words, this attack on Israel is a proxy war between Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza over who is going to be the one true leader of the Palestinians. Since Monday, Hamas has launched more than 1,500 missiles at Israel, all of them targeted at civilian populations. Unlike Hamas, which invests zero dollars in defense for its citizens, Israel has a number of ways to protect itself. There are bomb shelters and reinforced hospitals and the Iron Dome, an anti-missile system that is effective at knocking between 85-90% to 90 of Hamas's missiles out of the sky. But Hamas has launched so many rockets that some do get through, and the result has been mayhem. Seven people have been killed in Israel so far, including a five-year-old boy and two Arab Israelis, a father and his teenage daughter. A kindergarten was hit, but luckily had already been evacuated. Hundreds of thousands more are racing for cover in bomb shelters throughout the country. Hamas's goal here is to provoke Israel to retaliate, bomb Gaza, kill Palestinians, and then get condemned by the whole world for being colonialist, white supremacist aggressors. And Hamas is incredibly effective at this. 
They embed their terrorist infrastructure in civilian areas in Gaza, which forces Israel to either retaliate and risk killing Palestinian civilians, or do nothing and let the missiles fall on Israeli civilians. Of course Israel ends up retaliating to try to destroy the missiles. What country wouldn't? But let's be clear. Israeli military policy is to avoid civilian casualties whenever possible, and Hamas's policy is the opposite, to maximize them. Inevitably and tragically, civilians in Gaza do get killed. Although you should take the statistics coming from Hamas with a grain of salt. Hamas controls all the media in Gaza. No information is allowed to go out without their approval. So it's impossible to know how many civilians were killed versus how many were Hamas terrorists. And while it seems that at least several children in Gaza have been killed, it also seems that some or most of them were killed by Hamas rockets that misfired and fell into Gaza. But either way, for Hamas, this counts as a big victory, because they get to blame Israel and claim that they are simply defending the Palestinian people. It is murderously cynical, and unfortunately, a lot of people around the world fall for this propaganda. Hamas right now is currently looking pretty good to the Palestinians. The situation is absolutely awful and terrifying and dire and could yet get worse, and it will only stop when Hamas stops launching missiles at Israel. Israel cannot back down and simply allow rockets to come pouring down on kindergartens. Unfortunately, Hamas has no real interest in stopping right now. Because remember, this isn't about Israel. Israel isn't going to stop the airstrikes, but they're also not going to suddenly invade Gaza to destroy Hamas, and Hamas knows this. So no matter how many civilians get killed, Hamas is confident that their terrorist organization will survive. Right now, they think they have more to gain by fighting with Israel in order to seize the leadership from Fatah. As long as Hamas sticks to its playbook of making Israel look bad for killing Palestinians, Hamas thinks that it will win the support of the Palestinian people at the expense of Fatah. Right now, they seem to be right. It's hard to know what will happen. It could end at any moment now, or continue for some weeks. All of these stories are big, but it may be that the biggest story this week is something that no one expected and that is still developing at a very rapid clip. Major street violence in Israeli cities. Earlier this week, Arab Israelis began rioting in several towns. Not a huge number of them, but enough. Arab Israelis are Israeli citizens, not Jewish, and they make up 20% of the population of Israel. This level of violence is extremely unusual and exceptionally worrisome. Earlier this week, mobs began attacking synagogues and businesses and the police. In a few cases, they turned on innocent Jewish bystanders who were beaten almost to death. In response, right-wing Jews have been attacking Arabs. In one abhorrent incident, a mob tried to lynch an Arab man. A pregnant Arab woman was beaten. What we're seeing is some of the worst Israeli-on-Israeli Israeli violence in years. As of this episode, it's just getting worse. A spiraling cycle between extremists' mobs that is threatening to tear at the social fabric of Israeli society in a way that Hamas's rockets don't. So this really worries Israeli leaders, even more than Hamas. Politicians are begging both sides to stop and calling for each community's leaders to demand calm. I don't care if your blood is boiling, said Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So it's boiling. It's irrelevant. You can't take the law into your own hands. 
You can't come to an Arab civilian and try to lynch him, just as we can't see Arab citizens do so to Jewish citizens. This will not stand. The worry here is that Hamas has managed to inspire these Arab Israelis, which would be a huge crisis, an irreparable split within Israeli society. It's too early to say that that's what's happening, but this is definitely the story to watch. It's the nightmare scenario, a civil war in Israel between Jews and Arabs if the violence can't be tamped down. And in the meantime, all these other conflicts continue. Events are unfolding so quickly that by the time you hear this, things may have already changed. I really agonized over this episode. There's just so much to say and so many different things to talk about. If your synagogue or church or mosque or community is looking for someone to help make sense of all this, you know where to find me, jewaudonno.com, and my email is jewaudonnopodcast at gmail.com. I will be back this Sunday with my regular episodes on Jewish history, talking about the era of the judges in ancient history. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Hitraot. See you later.